0: Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church if you're new to our ministry we're glad you're here and we hope that you'll settle in and become a part of what God's doing here right now we're in a series called how God helps us change and today's message is about how God uses our circumstances and the circumstances of our lives to transform us the Bible teaches that God has a good plan by which he orchestrates all that occurs in our lives but some people aren't convinced. Uh, Richard Dawkins is an Oxford professor of reason and science and the author of The God Delusion. He wrote that nature is not cruel, only pitilessly indifferent. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. Have you ever felt like that? I think that many of us have. And even if you haven't, you can probably appreciate why someone would. When you see the deaths and suffering that COVID-19 has caused, or the tragedy of a miscarriage or the pain of abuse, it's hard to make sense of how God could allow it. We wonder whether he's powerless to stop things, or we begin to doubt whether he's as good as we thought he was. And it's at those times when the idea of an indifferent and meaningless universe It seems like a solution. It feels like an answer because we no longer have to look for answers to why life doesn't seem to make sense or why God doesn't seem to act the way we think he should. Dawkins' solution gives us certainty, but in exchange, it eliminates all meaning and purpose from life. It trades a good and caring God for an impersonal and indifferent force of nature. feels like we lose too much. Another Oxford professor proposed a different solution. He compared our lives to a house and God to a renovation contractor. At first, we understand what he's doing. He repairs the drains and fixes the leaks in the roof. Those are jobs we knew needed doing, and so we're not surprised. But then he starts banging around the house in ways that hurt and don't make sense. What on earth is he up to? C.S. Lewis says, The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were gonna be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building up a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now, Lewis's view of suffering and the circumstances of our lives admits there's much that God does that is confusing and painful, but is ultimately part of his good plan for us. That balance comes from the passage or passages like the ones that we'll look at today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and I'll read from you from verses 28 to 30. If you don't have a Bible, pause the video so you can grab one and follow along. he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Now, this passage speaks of God's renovation plan for our lives. And these are good blueprints, full of meaning and purpose. The first thing they teach us is that God's plan is to use all of life's circumstances for our good. What might feel like random suffering and pointless pain is actually purposeful demolition and needed construction in our lives. God's plan is to use all of life's circumstances and all of our suffering for our good. Now, verse 28 is one of the most well-known and most loved verses in the New Testament. You've probably heard it, but we often just quote a part of it. We like that it says, all things work together for good, but it's important that we see who this promise is given to. There are two descriptions given. In the beginning of the verse, it says, for those who love God. So this isn't just a blanket note of optimism. It's not just saying that every cloud is a silver lining. This is a specific promise made to God's people. Those who love God is a way of describing a Christian. Does that describe you? Notice that it doesn't say, and we know that when we love God, all things work together for good. This isn't a promise of what God does when our performance merits it. It's a statement that's true at all times. It also doesn't say, and we know that for those who love God sufficiently, all things work together for good. This isn't an encouragement for a special tier of Christian, it's for all believers. At the end of the verse, it describes God's people. It says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Here it's making clear that believers are called with a specific plan in mind. We'll look at this word called a little later, but I want you to notice that Christians are those who are called as an outworking of God's design. If you're a believer, it's because God planned it. It's not a coincidence. This verse identifies people who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And it gives them a promise. It says, all things work together for good. The all things are talking about all of the circumstances of a Christian's life. And it says they work together for good. Now, that's different than saying that they are good. It's not promising that Christians get an easy ride. And we know that because directly following the passage we're looking at today, Paul starts talking about tribulation and distress, persecution, famine, danger. And so we realize Christians face a lot of circumstances that are evil. But the promise is that God works them for good. God brings good out of them in a Christian's life. The story of Joseph is a classic example of this. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused by his employer, forgotten by a person who owed him their loyalty. And yet those very circumstances were what God used to put him in a position of power in Egypt. And there he ended up rescuing the family that rejected him, as well as a nation that might have otherwise been destroyed. In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says... As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, in one sense, Joseph's life, or at least much of his life, was truly tragic. And the things that people did to him were evil. The promise isn't that God did some good things to offset that a little bit. No, God used the evil actions of others to accomplish good, both in Joseph's life and in the world. The problem is, we wish it were always so obvious. We wish we could always see this one-to-one correspondence between every difficulty we face and some good thing that God is accomplishing through it. C.S. Lewis pointed to part of the struggle, God's blueprints are different than ours. He's doing something bigger and deeper in our lives than we're typically interested in we'd be happy for him to make some small tweaks and then mostly help us to live more comfortable lives. Instead, he gets out the wrecking ball and begins construction in areas of our lives that just weren't on our radar. That's why Paul reminds us in 28 that we're called according to his purpose. The good that God's doing in our lives is defined by God's purposes, not ours. And so, The better we grow in our understanding of those purposes, the easier it is to see what he's doing in our lives. But even then, if Joseph's life is any any guide, there'll be plenty of things that we just don't understand. But by faith, we can have the assurance that God is using them for our good. The hymn writer John Newton, who gave us that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, put it this way. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. If you're a child of God, your circumstances aren't a random product of an indifferent universe. God cares for you, and he uses everything in your life for your good, even the rotten evil that people do, even the sickness and disease that are a part of a world that's cursed because of sin. God uses it all for your good. And by faith, we need to believe that. By faith, we trust that. But there's more to it than that. God's plan is not only to use all of life's circumstances for our good, but ultimately to make us more like Jesus. The renovation in our lives is aimed to shape our character and our faith. Christianity isn't just a self-help project. God has a plan to make us like Jesus. Now, verse 29 starts with the word for, to show that what comes in this verse is an explanation of the previous one. Verse 29 describes God's purpose in the sense in which God is working all things together for our good. And like he did in verse 28, here he begins with a description of who he's talking about. It starts by saying, for those whom he foreknew. Now, since this is followed by a description of God's predestination or determining ahead of time his plans for us, it's tempting to read this along the lines of, for those whom God foreknew would turn to him in faith, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. But it actually doesn't say that God knew something about us. It says that he knew us. And that's confusing because... We know that God knows everything. God is speaking of, or Paul here is speaking of God knowing us ahead of time in the unique way that the Bible often uses this term. Uh, For instance, in Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God's not just saying that he was aware of Jeremiah's existence before he was born. He lines up his foreknowledge alongside his consecration and appointment of Jeremiah to this task that he's, he'd prepared for him. God had chosen Jeremiah to be a prophet before he'd even been conceived. In fact, in Genesis eighteen nineteen, most modern translations have God saying of Abraham, I have chosen him. But in the King James, it gives a literal rendering, for I know him. That's what the actual word says. And all of that's to say that those whom he foreknew in verse 29 is another way of saying those whom God chose, or those whom God set his love upon, those whom God decided to show special mercy to. Again, it's a way of describing Christians. Now, what does it say about them? Let's look at the verse again. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, here God is laying out the essence of His blueprint for all of our lives. In eternity past, He chose to set His love on a people and determined ahead of time that He would make them like Jesus Christ. He wanted to restore the image of God in us that had been marred by the fall. He wanted to imprint the family likeness on us so that when people see Christians, they would catch glimpses of the Savior. That's God's blueprint for our lives. And it's important that we see that because it can make sense of some of the hammering that we hear. Now, our neighbors have been renovating this winter, and at first, we heard a lot of drilling and thought, Uh, Maybe they're installing a new vanity in the washroom. Then the noises continued, and we thought, I guess they're pulling up the tiles. It ended up going on for six weeks, and it wasn't until after they were all done that we realized that they'd completely renovated the entire floor. Makes a difference when you understand what the construction's all aiming toward. It's easier to take when you know what the purpose is, right? And this verse makes it clear that... God's purpose in our lives is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's an encouragement to you if you thought that personal growth was all up to you. If you've been trying to grow in integrity and righteousness and thought that it was you on your own trying to please God, then you've misunderstood. God's been planning your growth before it was even on your radar. He wants you to give yourself to the project, but make no mistake, He's the chief architect and master builder, not you. This verse also explains some of the frustration in our lives. If you're trying to polish the countertops and he's working to replace them, that's gonna feel discouraging, right? If your goal is to keep up with the Kardashians and God's goal is for you to keep up with Jesus, you're gonna just add stress to the construction process. And if we understand this, then we realize that a big part of finding peace in our lives is accepting what God's trying to do through our circumstances. Because we want what he wants for us. We want to be more like Jesus. Now, Joni Erikson-Tata misjudged the depth of the water in a lake dive as a teenager. She became paralyzed from the shoulders down. At first, she struggled with anger and depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. But God met her in that and transformed her in the process. She went on to write more than 40 books and has had an international impact in helping people face tragedy. She wrote this. There's nothing like real hardships to strip off the veneer in which you and I so carefully cloak ourselves. Heartache and physical pain reach below the superficial, surface places of our lives, stripping away years of accumulated indifference and neglect. When pain and problems press up against a holy God, suffering can't help but strip away years of dirt. Affliction as a way of jackhammering our character, shaking us up and loosening our grip on everything we hold tightly. But the beauty of being stripped down to the basics, she writes, sandblasted until you reach a place where we feel empty and helpless is that God can fill us up with himself. When pride and pettiness have been removed, God can fill us with Christ in you, the hope of glory. When I read that, I realize that's more than mere endurance. It's different than self-discipline or positive thinking. She shows what can happen when a person embraces God's plans to make us more like himself. And she challenges us to consider whether we're doing that. Can you say, God, your plans, not my plans? God, use the circumstances of my life to make me more like Jesus. Now, we've seen that God's plan is to use all of life's circumstances for our good and to make us more like Jesus. But the final hope of this passage is that God's plan is to perfect those whom he's chosen. God doesn't give up partway through the construction. He doesn't get fed up because the progress is too slow or because we're too uncooperative. God's plan is to perfect those whom he's chosen. Verse 30 describes an unbreakable chain of events in God's plan for a Christian's life. Listen carefully to what it says. And those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified those whom he justified he also glorified now let's break down the steps he starts by describing people who have been predestined the word just means determine ahead of time god made a plan for a certain group of people we already saw in verse 29 that this plan was for those whom he foreknew or those whom he chose to show mercy towards. What God predestined or predetermined was that he was going to, to make this group of people like Jesus Christ. The same thing is described in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 where he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us and laid out a plan for all of the circumstances of our lives to make us like Jesus Christ. Now it says, in verse, continuing in verse 30, those whom he predestined he also called. Now it doesn't give any detail yet as to what it means to be called, but he's saying he calls to himself the, one, the ones whom he's made this plan for. Then if you follow the next link, it says, those whom he called, he also justified. Now, we normally use the word justify in a negative sense. We say, he's trying to justify himself. And what we mean is that although he's obviously guilty, he's trying to convince people that he's innocent. We all agree that's proud and defensive. But if a judge justifies someone, that's different a judge has the authority to declare a person's innocence. And the Bible says that God does that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He declares us innocent, even though we're sinners. He declares us righteous because of Jesus. So it's saying, the people God predestined, he also called, and he also justified. It's not like God had a plan for a bunch of people, tried to call them to himself, but they wouldn't listen, and so it didn't quite work out. God's calling here has to describe him calling to us in such a way that we can't help but respond, because everyone who is called is also justified, and it's not like God just justifies everyone. Finally, the verse ends by saying, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That word glorified speaks of our perfection in glory. God's plan is to finally finish what he started and make us like Jesus. As we saw last time, this is a promise that it'll free us from even the presence of sin in our lives. Justification here, that's in the past. It takes away the penalty of sin. Sanctification is a big word for describing what God does in the present. He's breaking the power of sin. And glorification is in the future. It rids us of even the presence of sin. But the point of Paul stating this the way he does is to encourage us that God never finishes his reno projects halfway. If you're one of the people he's justified, he will also glorify you. In fact, he states it in the past tense because in God's mind, it's already a done deal. It's certain and sure. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God always finishes what he starts. He doesn't lose interest or lose his patience with you partway through the project. He finishes what he starts. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some pretenders among God's sheep. There are lots of hangers on among the people of God and they might come, they might go. People are attracted to religion for a million different reasons. There are people like the tradition of church or the assurance of religion. Some people like church because it makes them feel less guilty. By Giving God a little time, it eases their conscience to live the rest of their lives however they want. But if you're one of the sheep, God has good plans for you that go back to eternity. If you're someone who genuinely loves God and who has been called according to His purpose, then He's orchestrating every circumstance of your life for your good. He won't give up on you. Your future is so secure that He already talks about it in the past tense. He already sees the glory that your life will become once He's finished with renovations. So, are you one of God's sheep? Have you put your trust in the Good Shepherd? If you haven't, I want to urge you to come to him today. Respond to his call. Enter into this incredible plan that he has for his sheep. If you have done that, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your shepherd, then trust him with all that he's doing in your life. He has a good plan, even for the evil that we face. When I think about this passage and God's often inexplicable working in our lives, I remember a count I once read of British shepherding practices. Every so often they'll take their sheep and one by one, they'll throw them into a dipping trough filled with antiseptic liquid. The shepherd has to completely submerge each one and get its ears, eyes and nose under the surface of the liquid. It's obviously incredibly frightening for the sheep. They probably figure the shepherd's trying to kill them, but without this, The sheep would become sick from parasites and disease. You may be facing circumstances in your life right now where it feels like God's trying to drown you. But if you're one of his sheep, know the assurance that God is good and his plan is good. He's even using what you're facing right now for your good. Know that he's making you more like Jesus and he'll never give up on you. He'll finish what he started. And when it's over, It'll all be worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much in our lives that we don't understand. So much that we can't figure out. But you're God and we're not. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your plan is bigger, it's deeper than anything that we typically think on. So help us to trust you. Father, I pray for anyone hearing this that is still not one of your sheep. Give them, Father, the courage to trust you, to turn from all of the things that we trust in, in this world, and instead give themselves to Jesus Christ, to trust in him alone, to declare him as Lord and Savior of their life. Father, for those who have done that, give them the confidence and the assurance that your plan is good and your ways are good. Even when we don't understand you, your ways can be trusted. Fill us with the assurance that you always finish what you started. You won't give up on us. And when it's all over, It'll be so much, so worth the wait. Thank you for that great hope, Father. For we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I hope this message has helped you to see that God is working in all of the circumstances of your life for your good. If you're one of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. If it's raised questions for you, or if you're not sure whether you're one of his sheep, then leave a comment or send me an email. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.